Today's sermon is unique. This is the third sermon in a series called God's Property about uh, our bodies and sexuality in our culture and what God's Word says about it. I really wish if you hadn't heard the first two sermons that you'd go to the podcast and listen to them because I think they'll bless you. You're so inundated. It's pervasive in this culture, uh, this, the, the sexual philosophy that comes from the media and movies and, and, and music, and we talked a little bit about that last week. But we need to know what God's Word says about these things. Now, the sermon I'm doing today, I don't think I've been as thoughtful uh, and, and given so much consideration to a sermon in the whole 18 years that I've been here. Uh, I have for months been thinking about this one and asking the Lord to help me share it in just the way that, that he would be pleased with. And so I'm presenting to you today this sermon that I'm entitling, Leave Your Life of Sin. Now, I like to be pretty positive in, in sermons and sermon titles. That's not very positive, is it? Leave, leave Your Life of Sin. But, but those are the words of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, this could be a red letter uh, sermon today too. We did that series and finished it up. But we're gonna look at what Jesus says about so much of this. But here is a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And she's living in a lifestyle of sin. And we see the grace of God come through Jesus when he said, who condemns you now? That passage is talked about quite a bit by people who look at this story. But this line that I made my title today is rarely talked about in the church these days. And I think it needs to be addressed as well because Jesus said not only who condemns you now, neither do I condemn you, but he also said, now go and leave your life of sin. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. There's a pervasive philosophy in the church in America today that I think has hurt us. And it might surprise you. I think in any one circumstance, it's true. But when you apply it to all the circumstances of life, it goes askew. And it's a statement that some theologian said sometime back that the church in America has embraced. It goes like this. If we err, let us err the side of grace. Well, here's what our culture's done. Because that sounds pretty good on the surface, right? You've heard it. You might have used it. I've used it before. But what happened in our culture is we had moral boundaries that were set. And people were crossing them and we said, if we err, let us err the side of grace. And then we pushed it out a little bit. And then people bumped up against those things and, and we said, well, if we err, let us err the side of grace. And then, I mean, we got so far out there. Now, people think they can do whatever they want to do, live any lifestyle they want and call themselves a Christian. Let me tell you, the statement, if we err, let us err the side of grace is not in the Bible. If Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that statement works for grace that I just spoke about, what if we applied it to truth? Because, I mean, like, like they're the two wings of the airplane, right? He's full of both. You can't, the, the airplane doesn't fly without one or the other. So if I said, if we err, let us err the side of truth, uh, that, sounds, that sounds pretty good. But, you know, erring the side of grace leads to permissiveness and trouble and heartache and sin that abounds. Greasy grace. Airing the side of truth leads to legalism and pounding with the club. And the point is, the Bible doesn't say either one of those things. If we err, let us err. Here's what the Bible says. Try not to err. That's what the Bible says. And so we really need to look at the balance of those things. So let's look at the wings of the airplane. Here they are right here. Grace and truth. Where are you at theologically? Are you a grace person with a little truth? Is that what your wings look like right there? Or are you a truth person 
with a little grace, like, like this. I mean, the plane's going to have some trouble flying. Now, I would say that on any given moment, a judgment or a, a, a discipline call or a ministry call could be either grace or truth. So we're talking about a holistic philosophy of ministry and theologically what the Bible says. But for instance, here's what I mean by that. I was a camp director for uh, about 100 camps, youth camps. And I used to have to bring kids in who did silly things and, and they had to be disciplined or we had to know, you know, we're going to send this one home, we're going to work with them. Usually the way I dealt with them, was it a decision that was grace or was it a decision that was truth that was applied to the circumstance? It depended on their attitude and what the application uh, would be that was best. For instance, if one of them had done some things that could harm others, harm themselves and wouldn't listen and they had an attitude, quite often it was a call that was truth and we sent them home because it was going to be some trouble not only for them but for us and for others. But if they had an a heart that was uh, repentant and humble and they were sorry, then we, would, we could apply some grace in that situation and say, okay, well, we'll work with you there. And uh, we understand. So at any given moment, a call could be grace or could be truth. But overall in our lives, if Jesus was full of grace and truth, what are we to be full of? Grace and truth, because that's who Jesus is. Evidently in this passage, Jesus telling someone to leave their life of sin was not condemning them. Think of that for a moment, right? Because our culture and the media, by the way, don't base your beliefs in what the media says. They'll quote all the grace passages in the Bible and none of the truth. They don't know him, they don't love him, they want to destroy this truth, not lift it up. That, so so I'm, I'm here today to challenge you not to let this culture shape who you are and what you think, but let this book shape you. So a thought here. Do you believe that this is the inspired word of God? I would say most of you do. Now I'm telling you today that the sermon I'm about to preach, which will include lifestyles of sin that, that are cohabitation, adultery, and even homosexuality. I'm going to talk about those things. Um, the sermon that I'm sharing today is, is, is for the church. How do we approach these things? It's not for the homosexual, this sermon. Don't take this tape and give it to your homosexual friend. I'm not sure that they would completely appreciate it. They'd appreciate some things about it. But, if, but, but I want to challenge you as we look at the Word of God today. Do you believe this book? Because if you do, then, then I want you to be confronted by the passages that we read today. And I, and I want you to decide in your heart, if I believe it, am I going to follow it? Or am I just going to give it lip service? There's a passage in the Bible that says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so we're going to look at this and see what the Bible says. But Jesus said, at one, on one hand in the story with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said this, who condemns you? No condemnation, neither do I, Jesus said. But then he said, leave your life of sin. The media and the world's philosophy tells us that if we tell people to leave their life of sin, that we're condemning them. But according to the word of God and who Jesus Christ is, telling them to leave their life of sin is not condemnation, is it? Condemnation would say, I hate you, uh, I don't want you to go to heaven. That's condemnation. And I'll tell you, those, you know, that Baptist church that goes to funerals and holds up those signs and says God hates homosexuals, they are not God's people. They don't know Jesus Christ because God is love and that is not the right heart and that's certainly not the attitude God wants us to have in this church as far as I'm concerned and as far as I can uh, um, influence will never have those kind of hateful attitudes. 
And yet there's, there's something we have to look at and confront in this culture that would shape us into disbelieving this and buying into the philosophies of the world that doesn't even love Jesus or know him. We can't do that. I want to say a word of prayer before I go further. Father, help in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a Donnie Moore prayer, but that's where I'm going to go today. <clears throat> I, I wasn't going to go this route with the first point, but I really felt like the Lord influenced me this way because the church of Jesus has bought into some, some lies that need to be addressed. And I felt like before we could talk about a lifestyle of sin, we had to talk about this, and it's, it's this point. Repentance is necessary for salvation. The words of Jesus Christ now say this. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced, and these are the words of Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So there we see Jesus said, repent of your sin. And then Jesus said, believe in the good news. Luke 13, 3, Jesus again, he's talking about some people who are living in sin. He said, do you think that's okay? And he basically says this, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. Huh, I'm not hearing too much about that stuff these days in the church in America, are we? Maybe, maybe the church around the world, it's, but those are the words of Jesus. Here's some other New Testament scriptures. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. According to the Bible, you cannot receive salvation through Jesus Christ without repenting of your sin. Here's Nelson's Bible dictionary speaking about repentance. In Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God is seeing the truth that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. By repentance, one turns away from sin by faith, one turns towards God in accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a twofold turning or conversion is necessary for entrance into the kingdom. That truth is illustrated here in the Bible. Repentance, turning away from sin, faith coming to Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. The reason I'm saying that is we've come to a place in the church of America today, and, I, and you know, all the churches, can they, they believe different things, and uh, honestly, I'll just tell you where I'm at. I'm an, I, I'm an evangelical Pentecostal. And evangelical means that you, it doesn't mean what the media says. Here's what it means if you look it up in the dictionary, uh, at least Webster's Dictionary many years ago. This is what it should mean. Uh, that you believe that Jesus is the only way, he's the son of God, and that the Bible is the inspired word of God. That's what evangelical is supposed to mean. Now the media's changed it and some people have, uh, um, you know, made it a tag that I, I don't necessarily want to tag, but those are two things that I believe. That Jesus is the only way and the Bible is the standard by which we should base our lives and live. It's inspired, it's the inspired word of God. Pentecostal means I believe in the power that God would have to bring healing, miracles, and change lives and give us the strength to overcome whatever it is, including temptation. But here's a definition of repentance. What does it mean to repent? 
it means this, turning from the old to the new. And this means your heart and your mind and the end results will be that you change your actions as well. And I was saying a moment ago, um, when we believe the word of God and the word of God says repent, what's happened in the church today, the reason this is so important, is people are starting to live in sin any way they want and say they're saved. Any lifestyle, it doesn't matter. You can't question it because you're not the judge. Well, I'm not the judge, that's true, and I'm really glad because some people would go to heaven that shouldn't and some people go to hell that shouldn't probably if I was, if I was the judge because I, I don't know like he knows. I don't want to be the judge. But his word judges sin, doesn't it? His word tells us what's wrong and what to stay away from and he will judge eternal judgment someday based on what his word says. And, and so what he says is you have to repent and repentance means that you Make a decision that what you're believing in is wrong. For instance, perhaps you said, well, I don't think homosexuality is sin. Well, then you read the Bible and the Bible says it is. So you have a change of heart to say, God, I want to do the right thing. And you change your mind. Okay, it is wrong. And you turn, not only that, it's a change of mind, but you turn and you go another direction. So repentance is turning from sin and moving another direction. So let's say that this direction is God right here. And that, I'm sorry, this direction is sin right here and that way is God. So I'm turning and saying, I'm facing the sin and saying, okay, uh, I'm gonna repent of my sin. I know it's wrong, I'm sorry. But then I start to do this. I just give it lip service and I go, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I did it again. I'm sorry I did it again. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry I did it. I don't wanna do this anymore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, bam! And finally we hit a wall. And I'm gonna tell you that if you don't repent of a lifestyle of sin, that you're gonna hit a wall in this life where there'll be devastation. And at the most, which is really what this sermon is about, my major concern, the concern of God, you will be lost for eternity. You cannot live a lifestyle of sin and say that you're in Jesus Christ. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can say that we've got it right. But when people are not even in the struggle against sin, when people are embracing it willfully and continually, when people are saying God doesn't care and it's okay because I say so, when people are saying I don't like that passage and so they take it out of the Bible and insert whatever they want, we don't need the Bible anymore. You're writing it, right? You're writing your own Bible. Listen, you can't even manage your own, your own life. How are you gonna help other people? I can't do it either. We need the word of God to give us guidance. Is a man who beats his wife every week and says, I'm sorry each time, truly repentant, if he does that over years? Is a person who robs homes every night and says to God, I'm sorry, each time after the theft, really repentant? Is a woman who goes to a club every Friday night and sexually hooks up with a different man, truly repentant? Is a couple that lives together and is having sex before they're married and asking God to forgive them each time really, truly repentant? Is a husband who's having an affair and is with the other woman a couple times a week for years and then asking God to forgive him on Sunday morning truly repentant? Is a person who decides to move into a lifestyle of homosexuality and says to God, I know you're okay with it, or even asking him each time for forgiveness, is that person truly repentant? The answer to every one of those questions is no. That's not what repentance is. 
Repentance is turning away from that lifestyle and moving towards God. I'm going to tell you something about the turning away. When you start to take steps towards him, you'll see some passages that shows that the power of God will attend the one that starts to walk in his way. It'll go beyond your own ability to now working in his ability. And with each step you take, that thing that once had a hold of your life will get easier to walk away from and everything will get better. And the only way you can truly know that is to decide in your heart and mind, turn around and start moving and then feel his power helping you. I'm fond of saying this. You've heard it many times if you've been here. It takes willpower, your will, and his power. You decide, and then his power shows up to help you when you start moving. Repentance is changing your mind and the sinful behavior and going in another direction. This passage illustrates that well, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Now notice, this, this isn't the stumbling and falling kind of sin. This is not the once kind of thing that it's talking about. This is talking about lifestyles of sin. These are people who've embraced these things in such a way that they're living them out, not really caring what God's word says, denying what it says, or rewriting it, and living in their sin on purpose. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's heaven, that's the kingdom of God set up back on this earth. When Jesus comes back, that's eternity. You will not inherit the kingdom of God It says if you do wrong, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols, and again, lifestyles now, or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this next part. Some of you were once like that. Do you see repentance in there? It doesn't say some of you currently are homosexuals when it's talking to believers. It doesn't say uh, some of you are currently living a lifestyle of adultery or sexual immorality. It says to the believers who've repented, that's what you once did. That's who you once were. Some of you were once like that. They've changed by the power of God. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Repentance is part of salvation. It's turning and going in another direction, receiving his forgiveness and his power to move forward in a new and holy way. Second thought here. It's similar. Those who deliberately live in a lifestyle of sin will be lost. I know it's not popular to say that. But look at this scripture, Hebrews 10, 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, that's a lot like the point I just made in my second uh, issue there, isn't it? Those who deliberately live a lifestyle of sin will be lost. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. I want to remind you, this is the New Testament, the New Covenant. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. I don't think that preachers have the privilege of cutting that stuff out on Sunday mornings. I don't think they should be able to edit that out. If it's in there, it's in there for a reason and it probably should be spoken. For sure. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, and let me point out that the law doesn't save you, but it does expose sin and tell us what sin is. So we know what we need to repent of. Excuse me. Anyone 
who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sanctified him? Now, it's talking about people who deliberately keep on sinning. It says that they, they are trampling the Son of God underfoot when they do that. It says that it's an unholy thing. And then it goes on to say that they're insulting the spirit of grace. Isn't that interesting? That deliberately living in sin is an insult to the biblical concept of grace, what God says about grace. Because grace not only forgives, it empowers us to overcome sin too. It says, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, the Lord will judge his people, it will be a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Deliberate sin is an issue in the Bible. Lifestyles of sin are a problem. Willful, continual, deliberate decisions to, to walk in that sin means you're out of Christ, not in it. The New King James Version uses that word uh, deliberately, but it, translated, it translates, for if we sin willfully. Hebrews 6, 4 says, it is impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Evidently, you can fall away because it's talking about believers that fall away in verse six. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance, why is that? How could that be? It can't be impossible to receive repentance. Here's why it's impossible. It's impossible because to their loss, they're crucifying. Crucifying is ongoing, it's continual. They're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Huh, one passage said it's an insult to grace. Another said when you continually stay in your sin, that you're subjecting him to public disgrace. Willful, continual, deliberate. Not a stumbling and falling. Not a progressive sanctification where we're getting better and better all the time. All of us are gonna stumble and fall, but to keep moving towards him, and pretty soon those things that once held you back and held you down, as the Bible says, so easily beset you, they're, they're not holding on to you anymore. As God brings you out. Ephesians 4.22 says this. My question is, if God says it can happen, can it happen? Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life which is corrupted by lust and deception. Well, if what we believe is true, why don't we just cut that one out? Why don't we just wad it up and throw it in the garbage and write our own passage? If it says it, is it possible? Is God so mean-spirited that he'd tell you you could do something when he wouldn't help you to do it? What kind of view is that of him? If his word says it, and again, I'm asking you, is this the word of God? Throw off your old sinful nature and your former ways of life which are corrupted by lust and deception. Verse 23, instead let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God. And here it is again. We're not hearing a lot about it in the church today. Truly righteous and holy. Why does God want you to live right? So you're blessed. You know why I want to be righteous and holy? Because I'd like to look a lot like him so I could bless other people. I'm flawed. I'm not perfect. My family could tell you that if you had a conversation with them. But I want to be righteous so that people can see 
how loving and how wonderful and good God is. When we start to live like him, people start getting a better picture of who he is. With these things in mind, throw off the old sinful nature, let's take a comprehensive look at homosexuality in the Bible now. Now, the reason I'm talking about homosexuality is I've done two sermons on sexuality already, and we haven't addressed this. And I want to address it comprehensively today as we look at the the Bible. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? If it challenges what you think, then I'm asking you again, do you believe the Bible or are you going to make it up in your head? Or are you going to receive it from the media who doesn't know him or love him predominantly? There are 20 passages about homosexuality in the Bible. 14 that speak directly and 6 that speak indirectly about homosexuality. Now let's, let's look at the key passages. Leviticus 18.22, do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with the woman, it is a detestable sin. Leviticus 18.22, this is the living Bible, same scripture, different translation. Homosexuality is absolutely forbidden for it is an enormous sin. If you're, now, now if you don't want to believe the Bible, that's up to you, but don't leave here saying homosexuality is okay and say, you know, I'm a Bible believer. Because the Bible says that it's sin. 1 Timothy 1.10, now we're in the New Testament. You say, that's the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. The laws for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers or do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching. So that scripture lets us know that if we say any of those sins as lifestyles are okay, it's against the wholesome teaching of the Bible. The Bible says different. Jude 1.7, and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's not the Old Testament passage. It's the New Testament, New Covenant, servants of the Lord, writing, reminding us not to forget it, and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion, those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of eternal fire of God's judgment. That probably makes a lot of you uncomfortable. But I just want to remind you, I haven't even commented on that passage. I didn't write it. Do we believe what the word of God says? So let me address a couple of myths about homosexuality in our culture that we're facing. The first myth, homosexuality is natural and people are born that way. Now, uh, let's talk about science for a moment. I, I, I like science. Um, I think we can learn a lot from science. But science isn't what we know. Science is a study to know. That's the definition of science, a study to know. The problem with human beings is we don't have all the information all the time, all the right information to get into the study. As a result, you find out who's doing the study and what their bias is, and it's amazing how they can end up where they want to end up. What I mean by that is this. If you see a study that is a scientific study that says a pound of chocolate a day will extend your age and your life, Find out who wrote the study. And if it's Hershey's, then you probably don't want to believe it because it, it doesn't sound quite right, does it? 
I mean, I mean, it might help a little bit. You know, if you had a little bit, certainly not a pound. You're going you're gonna to die fat and soon if you do that. <laughs> not only when it comes to science, this, this may surprise you, but you can make this thing say anything you want it to say if you just pull out passages that are either grace or truth-oriented, but you don't use the balance of this whole book. So people can justify sin in this by pulling out a few scriptures. Let the one with sin cast the first stone. That's a great passage. But, but Jesus said, now go your way and sin no more. There's the balance. So you can make a scientific study, say whatever you want it to say, and the bias will reveal who wrote it. But I'm here to tell you that this Bible said the world was round when scientists were saying it was flat. Before they even got on the map with their theory, the Old Testament said that. God is all-knowing. He has everything in on his study. He doesn't need to be told by a few people who are trying to figure it out. What I'm trying to get you to do is believe the word of God and trust his word. So, they're telling us that it's natural and people are born that way. But here's what the Bible says, Roman one, Romans 1, 26. Talking about homosexuality, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Let me tell you what the Bible said about homosexuality. It said it's not natural there. They exchanged what was natural for what was not natural. The Bible said it was shameful and it's a perversion. Now, l- let me remind you, lest we just pick on homosexuality, that adultery is sexual sin. And a lifestyle of that will, it will, will do the same thing for eternity for a person if you stay in it. Sexual immorality outside of marriage before you're married. That's a lifestyle of sin too. Those things... There are perversion as well. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. If you look that word natural up, in the Greek, part of the definition is not inborn. Not born into. So the Bible says that people aren't born that way. If you've been told that because you feel homosexual you are, you've been lied to. There's all kinds of temptation from all kinds of sin. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that homosexuality is getting a pass uh, in, in the sense that it can't be resisted, but all other sin is not getting a pass? In the Bible... Everything that's called sin is expected to be resisted and God tells you that he'll help you overcome it. So adultery is a sin. Heterosexual uh, sex outside of marriage is, is a sin that can be resisted, must be resisted. God will help you and he'll bless you and, and, and bless your life. It'll go so much better if you follow the truth. But that's true of homosexuality too, that it must be resisted. I'm not saying it's not tempting for some people. I don't want to diminish the the reality of a struggle that some people have who struggle with this. But here's what I want to tell you. Temptation comes our way, but that's not sin. And God says he'll help us overcome the temptation. 
Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Bible teaches that all sin can and should be resisted. Here's what it says. But remember this. The wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you. And no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and will do what he says. He'll show you how to escape temptation's power so that you can bear up patiently against it. For those of you who may be coming impatient right now, let me tell you, I'm gonna get to the grace part, but we're sharing some truth right now. We're gonna have both wings of the airplane here today. But the truth is, it is a sin like all other sins that can and should be resisted and God will help. If you're here and you're struggling with this lifestyle or you're struggling with thoughts because of a previous lifestyle and you're not able to overcome, I wanna suggest a couple ministries to you that, that will help you overcome. One of them is Exodus International. And if you, you can go and look at the podcast later if you uh, don't feel comfortable writing it down now, but it's, it's found at exodusinternational.org. That is a place where you can find tools. You know, how do I deal with my loved ones, my friends, my family? How, how do I reach out to them that are homosexual? Exodus International will have some really good books and tools for you there and, and even articles that will be a good resource to you. But then there's a local ministry called Portland Fellowship and you can find that, the details out about that ministry at portlandfellowship.com and they'll walk with people who, who have repented and want to go another direction. And that ministry will walk with you for a couple of years to help you get free. I can tell you that there was someone in the first service who came up to me afterwards with a smile on their face who listened to this sermon, who was trapped in a lifestyle of homosexuality for well over a decade, is now married, has a child, and is extremely happy. And the Portland Fellowship walked with them to help them get free. It's not natural. People aren't born that way. The scriptures say different. And God says, resist the devil and he'll flee. God says, I'll help you with any temptation you face. Trust me. It says, trust God in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Myth two. And we hear a lot about this these days. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Well, I'll I'll tell you this. Jesus affirmed heterosexual marriage and never affirmed homosexuality. Of the 20 passages that are spoken to about homosexuality in the Bible, not one of them says it's okay. Every one of the passages says that it's sin. And Jesus said this in Mark 10, verse 5. He said, here's how it's supposed to work, the plan that God had. Look at verse 6 on the screen for you but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation these are the words of Jesus this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one since they are no longer two but one well the two becoming one literally it's it's talking about not only heart and spirit but body when it says the two become one Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bare a child the two becoming one is literally the not only uh, spirit and heart, but, but it's body too, where literally the two become one in the act of sexuality. And Jesus is affirming that as the way, and he never once said homosexuality was permissible. 
Jesus also affirmed the Ten Commandments. Now let me talk about, you hear people say, well, that's Old Testament, you know, some of this stuff. But I think it's very important when you look at what Jesus taught. Remember this, Jesus fixed anything that was wrong. He'd come, you know, he'd say, uh, you, you have heard not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So he, he kind of, people were go, getting things out of whack and, and taking advantage of the word and dancing around things. And Jesus fixed what needed to be fixed. Jesus didn't fix the moral law of God because the moral law of God didn't need fixing. Now let me talk about uh, the law for a moment. There's three aspects of the law. The judicial, the ceremonial, and the moral law of God. When you go to the Old Testament, the judicial law had to do with civic or governmental laws that were upon the Israelite people that God helped them with. The Israelites wandered as a people throughout nations and from sea to shining sea uh, there in the, in, in the Middle East. And they were more of a commonwealth than anything else, if you know government structure. And as such, they needed some laws to govern them, and God helped them with laws. Those laws don't need to be applicable to other governments. God was just helping them as they needed to know what to do as a massive group of hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million people was moving across the desert. He helped them. So the judicial laws don't, don't apply to us. They were just for that season and that people. The ceremonial laws have been fulfilled. What's that? Ceremonial in the Old Testament is they killed the sheep and, the, and, and they, they, they sacrificed the animals and the doves and, and they shed the blood for forgiveness of sins. Well, we don't need to do that anymore. Why? Because in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's the spotless lamb of God and the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the ceremonial is not necessary and is not imposed upon us any longer in the New Testament. When God wrote further revelation in the New Covenant, he, he says that passes away because Jesus fulfilled the law. So we don't have to be concerned about the judicial or the ceremonial in the Old Testament. But the moral aspects of God's law in the Old Testament have never passed away. And that's where people really mess up. The Ten Commandments that were written then are still for today. None of the moral aspects that were in the Old Testament, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His righteousness, and these, are, these speak of a righteous life and the righteousness of God. His righteousness is always intact and the moral laws of God never pass away. And Jesus affirmed the moral laws of God, the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. He's talking about the moral law now. How do we know? Because if you read the, the rest of the passage, and I'm not gonna go into it, he talks about some of the Ten Commandments in this in this. Uh, setting. He says, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will in any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus affirms the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, in Matthew 5. Here's one of the Ten Commandments that he was affirming. You must not commit adultery. Here's what we can know about the Bible. All throughout the Bible, immorality and adultery is considered any sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And Jesus was affirming the Ten Commandments and affirming that that was true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. And so Jesus was saying, the plan of my father was a man and woman committed in marriage and not going beyond those boundaries to find fulfillment sexually any other place. 
I would just add this as well. You know, people said, well, Jesus never. Well, do you believe that the whole word of God is inspired? You want to throw out the rest of the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that this is the inspired word of God. All scriptures, inspired word of God. Jesus said in John 16.13, but when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So he was leaving the disciples, the apostles, who were the eyewitness accounts of the way he lived his life, wrote down the things he did, the things he said, but Jesus said, he'll bring further revelation to you, he will guide you into truth, and I said that to say this, that's in John 16, 13, he was saying, more revelation is coming, and the canonization of scriptures, that is the compiling of all the books, the New Testament are the eyewitness accounts, the apostles, who he said that to, I will guide you, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. And I said all that to say, Jesus is saying that all of this is good for us and it's, it's the truth of God as well. Not just his words. Anything in here is God's word. And he validated that by sending the Spirit to guide into truth. Third thought here today. Let's get to the grace portion here. You guys are a lot quieter than the first service. I don't know what that's about. God loves all and wants to save them. At the core of the gospel is, of course, of course that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But did you know that that alone is not what saves you? It is the essence of what brings salvation. But what saves you is not that he loves you, but that you decide to love him back. To repent and to believe is to follow him with your whole life. To have faith in him to such a degree that you will trust that he'll help you to do the right things. But he wants all to be saved. He loves them and he wants them to be saved. Let's look at an example of Jesus ministering to those in a lifestyle of sin. And, 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 and let's, let's think about how, how should we apply this to our lives and our, our situations that we face every day with people who are walking in, in lifestyles of sin. Let's look at the woman at the well. And we'll fly in here too, the, the woman caught in adultery that I started with with that text at the beginning of the sermon. John 4, 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Here's what we know about this. First of all, Samaritans were considered an inferior race to the Jews. You've heard this before probably. So they didn't talk to him in public. And Jesus took care of that right away and said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. He just crushed the, what was wrong right here in the Old Testament and, and, and brought in in the New Covenant the reality of what he wanted, that all people count and are important to him. Not only that, but as a woman, men didn't speak to women in, in public in this setting because men were considered to be uh, superior and women were inferior, so they didn't talk to them in public. And Jesus crushed that too when he met with that woman in public, talked to the Samaritan Bible says there's neither male nor female in Christ as well. And Jesus was kind of setting right what had been wrong there in that setting. But here's what I want you to know. Here's a woman who's living a lifestyle of sin and Jesus is not ashamed to be with her. Now here's a thought about those who are living, let's say, in a lifestyle of homosexuality. Are, are we too ashamed to be with them? Are we so afraid that we can't be like Jesus are we so worried about what everybody says that we can't go love someone who the rest 
around us might not love? Who is the last one standing with the woman caught in adultery in that story I read earlier? Everybody else dispersed and Jesus was still there with her. I have a sister who is um, a lesbian and I, I love her. And I, I want her to be saved. And my question is this, how can my sister come to Jesus if believers will never meet with her and care about her? My question to us as a church is, how are they gonna be saved if we don't even interact with them? What's this disappearing act that the church is doing with people who are homosexuals as if they can't be saved or we should, we should stay away from them somehow? I like the word civil. I wish, I wish it would re-enter public conversation, the word civil. Because civil means to have difference of opinions but still be able to interact and get along. Of, of course we have a difference of opinion with people who live in lifestyles of sin. But that doesn't mean we're not supposed to be with them. How can they know unless we're with them? I get the feeling that Everybody Jesus is around that didn't know him, with, with the one exception of, of, of the um, Pharisees who were hypocritical. But everybody else, I get the feeling that, that they all felt like Jesus liked them. And um, what if, n- not only the homosexual community, but but all those, you know, cohabitation, whatever, whatever it may be, walking in there, what if they had the feeling that we, that we liked them? Would it hurt us? There's a lot of good things about my sister that I can affirm. She's kind to me. She's giving. But we're not saved because of our good works, are we? We're saved because of the grace of God. Because we repent and we come in faith. Well, I can say some nice things to my sister when I'm with her, right? And Jesus said some nice things to these ladies before they said anything nice back, before they did any repenting. He wasn't ashamed to be with them. Church, how can they get saved if we're we're not around them, if we disappear? How can they know the love of God if the love of God doesn't appear through us, hands and feet? Second thing I see in this passage is Jesus cared about her eternal destiny. Jesus was compassionate and caring with the woman caught in adultery. He said, who condemns you? Neither did it do I. There was compassion for her in that setting. But in this setting with the woman at the well, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. His care and compassion went beyond just making them feel good at the moment because he was embracing them to understanding that there was something further that they needed to embrace. Any relationship he had was not devoid of a thought or a conversation about their lives or eternal life. I, I think if you really care about people who are living lifestyles of sin, then you have in mind their eternal destiny. If you really care. 
when I was a, a little guy, we were in Oklahoma on a vacation once and I was walking around a, a pile of brush that must have been taller than a house. We were hunting rabbits with, uh, with, with dad and I wasn't hunting, but a little guy was going to flush him out of there. And I walked around and there was, a, there was a pond there and much of the brush went into the water. Well, I wanted to do what my dad said, right? So I, I walked out over the water and I remember being out there um, uh, where, where it was a little precarious and having a stick give way that I was holding it to grab it and looking to my right and below me were teeming a number of water moccasins. Now, I don't know if you know what cottonmouth or water moccasin is, but when they... They're the second deadliest snake to the copperhead in, in, in America. And if they bite you, you're dead in just a few minutes. And I almost fell into the water where those snakes were moving around. I think they were as afraid of me as I was of them. I startled them, I think. But I couldn't barely breathe. And I got on the other side and I tried to tell my dad and I couldn't even talk. Now, if I know there's some deadly water moccasins in that pond and someone comes along and strips down to their swimsuit and they're about to go in. Am I loving them if I don't tell them that there's danger there? Perhaps another person would say to me, hey, you, who do you think you are? Maybe you don't want to swim in those waters, but if they want to swim, that's up to them. And maybe that person doesn't want to tell them of the dangers, but I do. And I have a question for you. Is that person loving them more than I would be if I wanted to tell them? Beware. If I knew there was a sign on the other side of the pond that they hadn't seen that said, snakes in the pond, move away. They will kill you. And I didn't tell them, am I really loving them? I submit to you that allowing someone to choose a lifestyle of sin and not sharing the truth of God that they will be lost if they don't repent and not sharing the good news of the love of Christ that God will forgive and save all who've sinned is a lack of love. It is less love. It's not really the greatest love. The greatest love is love like Jesus had that will care enough about someone's eternal destiny that they will speak about living water. I'm concerned, um, and I want to be careful here, but I'm concerned that preachers in America aren't sharing the truth about a lifestyle of sin anymore. I'm concerned, as the Bible says, where there's no revelation that people cast off restraint. I've never in my life heard a sermon that dealt so expressly with homosexuality as, as the one I'm doing today. I'm not trying to say I'm a big deal. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I want to say to preachers, and I want to look in the camera as I say this, where are you? How can we skip over this part of the Bible? Where there's no revelation that people cast off restraint, is there any wonder that the culture is going awry and astray and away from God because the people of God don't have the courage to stand up and say, you must repent to be saved. Look, I'm gonna tell you why I didn't wanna be a preacher right now. I didn't wanna be a preacher because I had to stand up and say stuff like this that people don't like. That was one of the main reasons I didn't wanna be a preacher. 
And I fought God and I said, no, no, please, no, no, no. And finally I surrendered. And when I surrendered, I said, God, I'll do my best to preach with love, but to preach with truth. I'll do my best to, to, to tell people what it says and not what they want to hear. The Bible says that there are people in our culture who have itching ears, wanting to hear only what they want to hear. But a revelation must come from God's servants. Why? So people can be set free. So people will be in heaven. And if you think it's more love to just allow them to go on and be lost for eternity, I challenge that thought. For a preacher, for a servant of the Lord, for a believer, part of taking up your cross is saying things sometimes people don't want to hear. But it's all about blessing them, helping them, saving them so that they can know eternal life. Take a look at this video from an atheist named Penn Jillette, the magician pen and teller. And take a look at, just listen to what he says about sharing. Watch this. I mean, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have 
that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Isn't that interesting coming from an atheist, an unbeliever? And I, I think when he's, he says, if you really believe and you don't try to help, he doesn't respect you. Jesus, in, in this setting, um, well, it says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. It says in Romans 10.14, how can they know? Before people can ask the Lord for help, they must believe in Him. And before they can believe in Him, they must hear about Him. Someone said to me the other day, don't you, don't you think that, that people in a homosexual lifestyle know they're in sin? No, not anymore. I don't think they know. Nobody's telling them. Everybody's saying it's okay. The church has gone to greasy, permissive grace, and now eternal destinies in jeopardy. They don't know. But if we'll show up in their lives to love them, if we'll show up in their lives to care about them like Jesus did, if we'll walk with them, and then, I've kind of been on it already, and I'm gonna try to wrap up pretty quick here. Jesus spoke the truth and love to the woman at the well. He said, he, he wasn't afraid to speak truth. Why are we so afraid? He said this, you've been married five times and the man you're living with now is not your own. He said to the woman caught in adultery, go your way and sin no more. Jesus wasn't afraid, why are we so afraid? Could it be that we're thinking about ourselves more than we're thinking about them? As Teller said, that awkward feeling, we don't want to feel it. Years ago, I was uh, working out in an athletic club and I uh, had met a young man, had a conversation with him a couple times and uh, we, we visited along the way and he found out I was a pastor and uh, that seemed to intrigue him. But a couple weeks later, when we were stretching out, um, just before I started my workout, he told me he was homosexual. And uh, I, I didn't get alarmed. I mean, what's, it's commonplace in our society, right? And um, I wasn't unhappy to be around him. And then he went on to tell me, after we had developed a... a a surface friendship that his partner had just left him because he had become a Christian. And then he said that he was uh, depressed. And um, honestly, I didn't know what to say in those moments. I found it interesting that he felt like he could say that to me at this juncture in our interaction. But I just said, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you and then he said to me, do you think I'm going to hell? And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to turn to a guy who's depressed and say, buddy, you're headed to hell. I didn't, I didn't feel like that was the right thing, you know. And I said, uh, I called his name and I said, here's what the Bible says. That any lifestyle of sin, no matter what it is, if it's lying, cheating, thievery, heterosexual, adultery, and yes, even homosexual, that any lifestyle of sin must be repented of. But what I want you to know is this. Jesus loves you. And I want you to know I love you. And I want you to know I'll be praying for you. Now here's the deal. He never got mad at me. That's not to say people won't sometimes. But he didn't. 
And I did pray for him. And eventually I didn't see him again. But here's what I'm hopeful for. That because we developed that friendship, that because I did my best to love him, to tell him the truth of God, but to tell him about the good news. The good news is we're all forgiven of our sin, right? All of us. That there was a seed that was planted there. I don't know if you'll bring a harvest if you reach out to your child, your friend, your neighbor, your dad who's homosexual. I don't know that you can win them to the Lord, but I can tell you this. If you'll just plant and water with the love of God, and if you'll be like Jesus when the time comes, speak the truth in love, they'll have their best chance. And what I'm saying, and I hope you catch this, I'm not trying to put people down. I'm saying I want to see these people in heaven. I'm saying that I'm a sinner saved by grace and that if I don't repent, I don't get salvation. I'm saying that he's so loving that he came to seek and save those who are lost. 2 Peter 2, 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His power forgives all sin and saves all who repent and follow him and have faith in him. I want to close with this story. Ken Snyder's our worship leader. He was leading today. I'd heard him tell this story and I asked him if he would write it down for me so I could share it with you today. It's about his cousin Austin who died of AIDS. And I think it summarizes the, the very heart that God would have us to have for people who are living in lifestyles of sin. When Austin, this writing, this is Ken's writing, when Austin was almost too sick to travel, he made one last trip to Oregon for our family reunion. This was back in 93 when there was not nearly as much education about AIDS, so some relatives were keeping their distance from him at the picnic. After lunch was over, many of us were off playing volleyball and Trisha, that's Ken's wife, spotted Austin sitting on a blanket in the shade. He was as thin as a prisoner of war, gaunt and listless. She brought Jonathan, who was just crawling, over and asked Austin, Austin if they could sit by him. And Ken says just that single act of kindness was monumental to Austin. As they sat there, she felt the Lord prompt her to ask him for advice about raising kids in a pastor's home. Have you ever had the Lord speak something to you that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to you at the moment? But when you do it, God just does some great stuff. I'm glad Trisha did it. Ken says, after I finished playing volleyball, I joined them. How be it with my own battle going on against fear brought on by ignorance? I remember at one point, Jonathan was reaching for Austin's cup with water in it, and as he picked it up, I was trying not to overreact. I had visions of Jonathan catching AIDS off that cup, assaulting my mind. Thankfully, Austin saw what was happening and gently took the cup and looked down at Jonathan and said, you don't want to use this cup, I'm very sick. As we said goodbye that day, we knew it would be the last time on earth we'd see him, Ken says. We started praying together regularly for his salvation not knowing that Trisha would play a vital role in it. One night, Trisha had a dream and she saw Austin in heaven dancing with Jesus on streets of gold. She decided to write Austin a letter hearing that he was fading fast. In the letter, she described in great detail her dream. 
She told Austin how much Jesus loved him and encouraged him to give his life back to God. The letter got to Austin shortly before his death. Then Ken says, my mother and Austin's parents arrived in LA a week or so before he passed. My mother is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, he says, but she stepped right in along with Austin's parents and family to take care of him in an environment as far from hers as the North Pole is from the South. She told us that he held that letter from Tricia all the time and wanted it read to him daily. Ken says he surrendered his heart to Jesus just days before his death. He soon passed away, but before he did, he had told his parents he didn't want to recover because he was scared he would go back into the gay lifestyle. He knew how much of a hold it had on him. The Jesus followers in his life put together a memorial service and a potluck for the homosexual community that were Austin's friends. They were there to minister to his gay friends and to witness, this is the way Ken says it, to witness what Christ would be like, hating the sin, but loving the sinner. I just want people to know God really wants all who are living in a lifestyle of sin to be saved. So much so that he says to us, you are my ambassadors, speaking on my behalf, sharing my love, going to people who need to know me. And he shows us what joy it brings him when one comes in Luke 15, 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. When Austin, when Austin got saved, God was rejoicing. I have found my lost coin. And the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents.